Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast, or if this is your very first time listening or you just recently started listening to us, thank you very much for choosing this podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Now today we welcome back the brilliant, funny, warm and eternally optimistic Catelyn Moran to the podcast to talk about why she has started writing about the problems of men instead of the issues facing women. The offer of the book is basically, do you want to have a bang of feminism, boys? <laughs> Passing it round. The ladies have been toking on that bifter for a while. It's your turn now. We'll hear a lot more from Catelyn Moran later. First, for what it's worth, my very non-expert analysis of the Irish women's team's first outing in the World Cup against Australia, a game played in front of nearly 80,000 people in Sydney. And what an occasion. Total goosebumps in this house as we sat down in front of the telly, myself and my two daughters. Um, It was disappointing, of course. Ireland lost 1-0 against the Australian women's team, the Matildas. But Ireland really played out of their skins, only conceding a goal from a penalty and creating loads of chances in the second half. And it was disappointing, but a really excellent effort from Vera Pau's side. They can be very proud of that, even if they didn't manage to get a point. They play Canada next Wednesday, so let's hope they can do even better then. I have to say, I thought our captain, Katie McCabe, was fantastic. And also, it was brilliant to see young Abby Larkin out there. She's only 18 years of age. What a fantastic moment for her. So come on, Ireland. Still quite a bit of the road to travel and we'll keep our glass half full for the girls in green. Now, we're well used to hearing my next guest, Catelyn Moran, confront the issues facing women and girls with her trademark warmth, wit and wisdom. And I know many of you will have read her for years in the Sunday Times, where she's an award-winning columnist. And also lots of you have read her best-selling books, including the one that made her famous, How to Be a Woman. But you don't get to be a public feminist these days without the question being asked of you at public events, what about the men? And at first, when Catelyn was asked this question, she very much batted it away, reasoning that she was too busy sorting out things for women to be dealing with men's problems. But gradually, she came to see that fixing things for men would be beneficial not only to men and boys, but to women and girls. As always, Catelyn was hugely interesting, entertaining and uh, very thought provoking when she talked to me about her latest book, What About Men? And I think something that is always part of her work is that she is making some really helpful interventions. And what is also 
interesting is that she says talking about men and addressing the reasons why some men feel that they're losing and women are winning is an extension of her feminism because as any women will tell you she says 50% of our problems are men bad men scared men angry men misogynistic men so her point is that you can't fix the girls until you fix the boys and that's what she's trying to do with this book, which has not been without criticism, and we discussed that too. Uh, I think you're going to really enjoy it. Here's my chat with the brilliant and always hilarious Catelyn Moran. Catelyn, I'm so delighted to have you here again. I think this might be your fourth time on the Women's Podcast. I feel like I spend most of my time talking to you and it gives me the greatest possible joy I could just, I could ever begin to describe. Brilliant. Now, when I heard you were writing a book about men, I thought, excellent. If anybody should do it, Catelyn should. Although some people have been like, what's she doing sticking her nose in men's business? Well, should we start with the palaver? <laughs> I know. So I don't want to sound like a dick, but usually when I announce that I've written a book, the response is a variant on, hurrah, <laughs> can't wait to read it. That did not happen this time around. I was so surprised. Two weeks before the book was out, so no one had read it, I suddenly had such a barrage of uh, of Twitter bullshit that I had to close down my account because it was just getting in my head. So it was all people who hadn't read it. And first of all, uh, there were a load of women going, oh, I see, you've abandoned teen tits for teen trousers. You're not a feminist anymore. Okay, fuck you. That's very much not what this book is about. And then two groups of men uh, split 50-50. The first half going... So you're saying that men find uh, they have difficulties communicating their emotions. They need to be more open and find some kind of sense of brotherhood. Uh, How old fashioned and patronizing. What a terrible generalization. We don't have any problems with this. Screw you. And then the other group of men who were like, how dare you say men should be more emotional and find some kind of sense of community and brotherhood. We're not biologically wired for that. Why are you trying to turn men into women? At which point I was like, well, if you two groups actually talked to each other, (laughs) that would be the start of what I'm proposing we need, which is some kind of men's movement where you have conversations like, is it nature or nurture? Like how much of it is biology? We look at things like the suicide statistics and look at the problems that men have communicating emotions. Why don't you two guys debate this out and leave me, a tired middle-aged woman who's just trying her best, uh, alone. Uh, so, yeah, so I had to shut down my Twitter. And then I came back on thinking it was all over on the day that Jordan B. Peterson tweeted about I me. I saw that. So this is That's the man. just what you want, isn't it? A quote tweet from Jordan. Well, in the end, I mean, it did drive a huge amount of traffic and it was an nice. amazing piece of promo. So, you know, <laughs> the book went to number one. So thanks, Jordan B. But his his tweet. So this is the guy, let's not forget, the Time magazine called the most important intellectual of our generation. And his uh, first tweet was, uh, he called me Catelyn Moron. Oh, that was very clever. I'm sure you've never heard that before. A joke first made in 1985 <laughs> by Lee Bacon at Springdale Junior School, who was also the boy that... <laughs> Oh, I remember Lee Bacon. I remember Lee Bacon very well. He was the boy that ate a worm for 20 pence and then later, later at a house party, shot a snail with an air rifle. So great minds thinking alike there, Jordan B and Lee Bacon in very much in the same squad. And then Jordan B B's second tweet about me, because he was obviously quite peeved that morning, uh, was um, he said, I see she's as funny as all other, in inverted commas, female comedians. At which point it's like, so you you are still of that generation that think that women can't be funny. So you you just don't even know about Melissa McCarthy and Tina Fey and Amy Poehler and Amy Schumer, like kind of, you know, just like, yeah. okay, I get you now. You you weird Kermit-voiced Canadian in a mad waistcoat. I get, your, get your vibe. When I was watching all of this, I was thinking too, though, that, um, you know, How to Be a Woman came out, is it 12, 13 years ago? Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, if you if that came out now, maybe it would be a different response to it, right? It's just very difficult to to do anything at the moment. You yeah. not think because everyone wants you to do it exactly the way that they think it should be done. There is very much a cohort of people who, when they read a book, and you're not going, this book is specifically about Alex from Tunbridge Wells. Just get a bit peevish. Like <laughs> I was talking to another writer about this recently, and like that, it's sort of like with a lot of the discussions we have that that the ideal sentence would be I open brackets, acknowledge that I am a white, cisgender, privileged person who has grown up in the first world, though we don't refer to it as the first world anymore, close brackets, like cake, open brackets, although I admit there are people who are gluten intolerant and, you know, for whatever reason, don't have access to cake. So... It's <laughs> a lot of words, isn't it? It's just, you can't write like that. You do have to make, you know, the odd sweeping generalisation. Like, obviously, if I'm writing a book about men, it's not going to apply to all 4.4 billion people in the world. But there are, nonetheless, observable things about men, particularly straight white men, as a social class. And I think a lot of the pushback I got from men who, let's not forget, had not read this book, is that women, people of colour, people from the LGBT community, we are used to being written about as a social class. Like, I never know. And we, we identify as such and we campaign as such. Straight white men have not been written about as a social class and I think the idea of some titty David Attenborough turning up and kind of like <laughs> staring at the monkeys in the cage going yeah I observed things about you guys they, they, they didn't like it up and they just did not like it up and yeah and going back to generalizations I mean that's kind of your stock and trade and I well, mean that in a complimentary yeah. way like I love what you do I you know it's not like I agreed with everything in how to be a woman or went no. oh that's my experience too but I don't agree I was, with everything in but, how to but be a you woman entertained now. me you yeah. made me think you made me laugh you made, whatever it was you know and the idea that, you know, you, you have to write a book that's actually going to resonate with every single man that reads it is just ridiculous. Well, no, but, you know, you, know, you can't, you know, you, well, no one's in the business of writing Bibles. You know, <laughs> what, what you do is you, you're a conversation starter. Like, you know, you try and write, you know, and my, you know, some people like to shock and offend. I'm very much like that. I want to start conversations in the most warm, inclusive, silly, let's have a bit of a boggle about it this way possible so that you get to start a difficult conversation with someone you know and blame it on me. You just get to go, Catelyn's written this thing about porn or Catelyn's written this thing about how all men have a really disgusting T-shirt that they wear to the gym. And, you know, if it was difficult for you to start that conversation, you can blame it on me and I, I like having that job. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we kind of got that out of the way first because yeah. it means that we can go forth and everyone can understand that you know all the stuff that, that oh, people well, are saying. Well, I'm, feel, I'm, I'm feeling like I'm taking my inspiration from Nabokov. So when Nabokov wrote Lolita, um, kind of like, generally to good reviews, but there were a couple he didn't enjoy. Uh, in the third edition in the preface, Nabokov wrote a review of Lolita and went, I Nabokov I'm telling you where you got these things wrong in these reviews <laughs> this is what's great about Lolita here's some of the things I would have improved and I'm thinking of maybe going Nabokov on the second edition I think you should go full Nabokov yeah okay. review myself so let's talk about it because I've interviewed you in public interviews before and always as you say in the book there's always somebody in the audience at some point goes what, what about, about men? men? And that's why it's a perfect title for yes. you because you've been listening to this. And I remember thinking one time when it, when it happened, you were quite dismissive. We're kind of like, look, you know, let men have enough to be doing. You know, why should women have to sort out men too? That was kind of your thoughts at the time. Oh, super but, peevish, yes. But it did change. And tell us about it. There was a particular event, wasn't there? Yeah, so International Women's Day two years ago, I did an event at a college, 15 and 16 year olds, half boys, half girls. And I thought, because it was International Women's Day, our special day, <laughs> um, that we'd be talking about the women and the girls. And the boys weren't having a of it they were just like no it's like we're tired of talking about the problems of women boys are the ones that are struggling now it's harder to be a boy than a girl girls are winning and boys are losing feminism has gone too far which was news to me um and they were angry and i'm always intrigued when you see a cohort of people who are angry because angry people are scared people Anger is just fear brought to the boil. And it was like, why would boys be scared of girls? How could they think we're winning? Because by any measurable indice, 
women still aren't. We are still underrepresented in politics and business. You know, we still have the pay gap. One in four of us knows that they will be sexually assaulted or raped. So this very, in the corporeal world, women still aren't winning And look at Afghanistan as well, which is just, you know... The, the very worst of the worst a state as we yeah, sit here that is absolutely Steve women is not even second class citizen they're not even citizens so so clearly that that's not the case so so what is it then that these boys this generation of boys would make them think that they are losing and women are winning and I was like well the only thing that women have got that men don't have is feminism over the last 150 years we've done this incredible magic I still think the greatest achievement in human history that, that a completely oppressed class of people self-organised, most of them at the beginning without education, without voting rights, still seen as the property of either their fathers and then their husbands, kind of like unable to go into business, organised, campaigned, talk to each other, and we now live in a world where women can rule countries, we go into space, we wear trousers, we smoke cigarettes, like, and we, you know, and we contribute, you know, 50% of the awesomeness of humanity to the world. In that same 150-year span, things haven't really changed for men at all. Like, we've changed utterly the definition of what a woman is. We haven't really changed the definition of boys and men. And on top of that, there's been such, in this last 15 years of feminism, there's been so much positivity and heat and hope and joy and creativity and humour around being a woman. We were at peak not giving a fuck about talking about ourselves. Like, kind of the conversations that I hear, you know, with my daughters, I know everything about their vaginas. Like, kind of, I have taught them to be proud of them. Well, we have discussions about them. My, my, my youngest daughter who's going through a very horny, thirsty phase is like, my vagina <laughs> is hungry. <laughs> it needs to be fed this weekend. <laughs> I must go to a party and choose my prey. Like, kind of, and I love this. And on Etsy, you can get vagina-based merchandise and like, kind of like, you know, just beautiful Georgia O'Keefe-themed posters. Like, it's amazing. But if you imagine a dad having a conversation with his teenage son about his penis and wanting to have sex, or being proud of his penis, or having penis-based merchandise, it's absolutely unthinkable. And sounds problematic, right? Sounds very dodgy. Right? But it was equally unthinkable for women to be having these conversations with their daughters about their vulvas in, like, 1997. So we know things can change, and we see that things have changed for the better. And the idea that we haven't given to our teenage boys the freedoms and joys and hopes that we've given to our teenage mm -hmm. girls, and that we are now seeing a generation of boys that are saying women are winning and boys are losing, and are then talk turning to people like Jordan B. Peterson and Andrew Tate, who are going, yeah, misogyny is the way forward for you. What you need is power. If you are feeling anxious and depressed, mm -hmm. then what we offer you is power you need to gain power over women again we need to go back and what if you are a boy in this century you don't need power power never solved your anxiety or your fear or your worries what you want instead is empowerment you need to learn to educate yourself you need to learn to self-soothe you need to learn to be able to be frank and honest about your problems and share them with other people and change your definition of what being a boy is and that's what feminism did for women we never wanted power over men we just wanted empowerment and it's palpably made us happier so my, the offer of the book is basically do you want to have a bang on feminism boys <laughs> passing it round the ladies have been token on that bifter for a while it's your turn now and listen you, you, you it's not an academic book I should no, no. stress to everybody because it's it's a it's got lots of very funny jokes and it's based a lot on your experiences and people you've spoken to but you did do a bit of research into the problems of men and some of the things like you found it really just paint a stark picture well he, this is funny like, some of the reviews they were just like oh it's just a bit chatty and she's talked to some people yeah, on Twitter chatty, and makes some, yeah oh, chatty too I mean, many black capitals women just talking too much yeah <laughs> first of all all the research is there. I wrote a first draft that was very dry and very academic. And then I just went there and went, but no one's going to read a dry academic book. So the, all the stuff where I'm talking to people and going on Twitter and telling anecdotes and making jokes is to make it, a, 
I hope, a pleasure to read. Like, I don't believe that progress should be a dry, fibrous duty that you chew through. Progress should be an offer of, like, read this funny book and you'll learn some stuff along the way. So we start off with a very dollar set of facts. So boys are more likely to be medicated at school for disruptive behaviour, more likely to be excluded, less likely to go on to further education, more likely to be addicted to drugs, alcohol or pornography, more likely to join a gang. Uh, they make up the majority of the homeless population and the prison population, and suicide is still the leading cause of death for men under 50 in the UK. So that's a chunky set of gender-based problems with education, with society, you know, with, with your mental health. So we just wanted to start with that, just kind of like, here are the facts. Now let's try and find a way of breaking these down into like a series of chapters where we go through basically every stage in a man or a boy's life and go, how are these things happening? How could we change them? And when you're writing How to Be a Woman, like you're very much basing it on your own experience, but yeah. this is you as an observer. How was that? How did that feel different when you were writing? Oh, well, I mean, there was there was a massive nervous breakdown because like... <laughs> Because, like, obviously, usually I mind my life for stuff. My, I, I believe it's polite that you start with a vignette from my life of me basically being a dick or screwing something up or something terrible, and then we go and talk about the analysis and the feminism and the politics of it. With this, I have no experience of being a boy or a man. I was just sitting there going, how am I going to make this fly? And then I realised I don't... I was like, well, that's the question I need to ask. I don't know what it's like to be a boy or a man. If you go into any bookshop, there is a woman's section and it's full of memoirs. There isn't a stage in a woman's life that has not been chronicled over and over again in memoirs and in feminist books and kind of, you know, periods, menopause, like motherhood, all these things. There is no men's section in any bookshop. We don't chronicle normal men's lives in the way that we do with women, where we talk about all these different phases and problems. So I just realised when I started going and interviewing people, I didn't actually know what the texture and the staging points were between going to a boy or a man in the way that we know so well with women. So I've interviewing people that I'd known for like, you know, 20 or 30 years and astonished at the stories they told me when I was finally going, tell me what it's like being a boy or a man. The fear of violence at school. Every boy had been in a fight. From day one, apparently, you are working out who in your classroom you could beat in a fight or would beat you in a fight, mm -hmm. which suddenly made sense of a trope that I'd noticed in the men that I know of my age, that when they're in a pub, they'll just spend two hours going, what would win in a fight, a bear or a swan? <laughs> Previously, I just thought they were just mucking about. But it's like now, God, no, that was inculcated in you from a very young age. So that if you came up against a bear or a swan, you could calculate your own odds. So the violence was massive. But they were talking about abuse, childhood abuse, um, alcoholism, suicidal tendencies, becoming really self-destructive, like eating disorders. And at the end of all these interviews with these friends, I was like, well, why did you never tell me this stuff? I've known you for so long. And they were like, yeah, but like they would say variants on, oh, that's just quite boring. Or that's what it's like to be a man. Or I don't want to make a fuss. And the word heartbreaking is the one really unexpectedly I use most in this book because this inability to see your life as interesting or fascinating in the way that women do find our lives fascinating. We talk to each other about every aspect of our lives. Like we know about each other's births and first periods and first masturbatory sessions. Boys are like, no, we wouldn't talk about that. We don't want to make a fuss. That's just what it's like. It's unexamined. And I, and I was like, I think that's probably one of the main reasons why there hasn't been a men's movement, that fundamentally men can't bitch about stuff in their lives in the way that women do and then go, well, we need to do something about it because the conversation never starts between men. That's why we don't have a movement yet. And so I was like, well, I feel like I've got some fairly good chat jobs. My aim with the book is to be able to start talking about the lives and problems of men in such a way that 
they can then continue this conversation. And my ultimate hope is that men now read my book and go, actually, I could write a much better book than that. <laughs> and then we have dozens of books about this where yeah. they talk about their own lives. That's what I because want to happen. Because something some people have said is, yeah, she just talks to her friends who are men. Like, they, I don't know where they were expecting you to go. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Going off around the world, to, what were they expecting? Well, we talked, I, I talked to loads of people. You know, on Twitter, we were finding people there, like kind of education experts who were talking about how to de-radicalise Andrew Tate fans. We were talking to sort of GPs who were sort of going, yeah, when a woman comes into the surgery, uh, and I ask her why she's here she'll list her symptoms when a man comes in he'll say my wife made me come uh, like kind of like it's men finding it difficult to access healthcare like you know I talked to you know many many people that I don't know and experts in their fields and stuff mm. but it should be a chatty book that's how yeah. feminism starts and I like that idea of yeah go off and write a you know write an even better one than, than Catelyn I beg you do <laughs> like honestly like kind of please like just start this but it was really interesting so I jokingly at the beginning of the book I go which is true I had spent the last 10 years thinking a man would write this book. And in the end, I was like, well, I guess it's going to be Muggins here. Busy mum is going to have to sort this one out for the boys. And the first question I got on the first night of the tour was from a man down the front going, you joke about that, but you know it had to be a woman, don't you? And I was like, what? He was like, can you imagine a man right now writing a book called What About Men? Where we say no one is talking about our problems and we are in crisis and we need to have a bit of time and space now. He would be destroyed. It would be seen as massively problematic. If anyone was going to start this conversation, it had to be a woman and a feminist. So it looked like someone was going, actually, this is fair enough. We do need to talk about this. And that actually blew my mind. I was like, I think he's right. And then I got several sort of messages when some of the reviews came in from, from amazing male writers that I absolutely love and that I would have thought would, would write a book like this. And they were saying the same thing. Like, we've thought about it and okay. we just knew that it just that it would just be too difficult for a man to go, it's our turn now. <laughs> it, they were just like, I couldn't think of any way that it wouldn't seem problematic or make people angry. So... Fair enough, mummy had to sort it out in the end. So listen, let's talk about Andrew Tate and mm. your man Peterson as well. Like, what did you, in thinking about them and reflecting on why some, uh, because it's, it's here as well, and I mean, you were at your event last night, you asked, does anyone not know who Andrew Tate is? And there was Everyone silence. Knew. Everyone yes. one knows. And people are talking about how in classrooms, uh, male teachers are getting, you know, horrible um, challenges and stick back, or, and female teachers too, um, based on Andrew Tate-isms kind of thing. So what did you come to sort of decide about why it's resonating so much with, with some young men? Every single person I have spoken to in the educational system has gone, yeah, we've had to have staff meetings at school to deal with this. So female teachers are getting homework handed back by boys with make me a sandwich written on the bottom. Like, you should not be teaching me. Male teachers are having boys going, um, do you let your wife go on her own, sir? So the amount of resources that are being put into this one man. And when he, he was first on the rise, I had a lot of conversations with good liberal progressive feminist friends whose sons were being sort of sucked into his ideology. And they were like, we don't understand. We're good liberal progressive feminists. And what was the appeal? And I was like, I think it might be because you were good liberal progressive feminists. Because has your son grown up in a house where you would be saying, ah, oh, typical men, typical straight white men, toxic patriarchy, the man, you know, sort of like, you know, masculinity. Uh, and they were like, yeah. And I was like, well, yeah, I, I, that's why. Like we, the men of my, the progressive men of my generation, when this wave of feminism came along, brilliantly and, and politely just went, fair enough. This is a very recent and relatively mild corrective to 10,000 years of patriarchy and Benny Hill chasing sexy schoolgirls around a tree. Well, let the ladies have a go. We'll just pipe down. 
But suddenly, a generation's gone past, and we these teenage boys don't have that perspective. They don't see how recent it is. All they know is that they live in an era where we're constantly saying, the future is female. In every magazine and newspaper, we would have a list of 50 women who were going to change the world. You know and I know, mm. no one would commission a list of 50 men who were going to change the world. <laughs> like, not now. That would be seen as problematic, because we're of a generation where we're like, no, we're still rebalancing the sexism and inequality. Years, yeah, yeah, but the boys don't have that perspective. So all they know is that there are feminist clubs at school. Like, kind of, we would just, you know, we're good writing books like 100 kick-ass female heroes from history, but suddenly a generation's gone by where we just haven't had any kind of positive, progressive, uplifting conversation about boys and men. And so that's why when Andrew Tate pipes up, he's the first person in their lifetime who's gone, no, boys are great. In fact, boys should rule the world. Masculinity is great and you can't have enough of it. So, of course, coupled with a sense of teenage rebellion and wanting to, like, fuck your parents off, like, he, he seems like a massively appealing figure. It's really interesting to say that because I would probably be one of those people as well, you know, talking about women. But I, I found, I have teenage daughters who thankfully don't yet listen to this podcast, so I think I can speak freely <laughs> until, I don't know. Anyway, they, they um, are quite down on boys at the moment, right? They find, you know, they're in a mixed school and they find, like, the, the boys in their class or in their year, they're, they're, they're scared of them a bit they yeah. feel like they're they're not people that they can relate to and, and they're being very down on boys and I find myself lately trying to go no they're just lovely people and I'm sure they're just going through stuff that you're going through and you know when they get a bit older you know girls are probably a bit more, more mature a bit earlier and it's really interesting how I'm finding I want them to go to a mixed school I don't know if it's different Catelyn to, to England here you know mixed schools are kind of the outliers which oh, really? most of them are single sex oh. which I it's a whole other podcast but I really think it's terrible yes um, but I, they happen to go to a mixed gender school. And it makes me so sad that their impression of boys at the moment, and I don't know if it's Andrew Tate stuff or whatever it is, or is it just like they're just a bit loud um, and, and they're a bit sensitive, I'm not sure. But it's just, uh, I find myself having to defend these young guys who I imagine are going through all the things that you're sort of talking about. Well, it's, the problem is, and like kind of one of the things that I'm trying to make clear in the book is that like kind of like when you've got like, you know, let's just be very basic and generalised, that's my thing, good men and bad men. <laughs> I think the majority of men are good. But, like, the small cohort of bad men are ruining it for not only the girls, but for the boys as well. So, for instance, my daughter was, um, she was in charge of the school yearbook. She was, like, in charge of, like, and she was, like, sent out a WhatsApp message to the whole year going, has anyone got any pictures of, like, trips we've been on and school plays and stuff? And I put them in the yearbook. All the girls sent back pictures of trips and plays. The boys started spamming it with, like, really extreme porn. And, like, kind of, like, you know, bukkake shots and kind of pictures of kids with learning disabilities, kind of, like, you know, and, and all this stuff. And, like, it was only four or five boys, but because there isn't anything like feminism for men, the good boys didn't know what to do. They didn't want to be seen to, like, kind of, like, you know, the party poopers or, like, to tell off other boys in the way that I think women are much better at policing each other. Like, kind of, like, had a girl been problematic on there? Feminism has become good, sometimes too good, at women scolding other women. But at least there is a self-regulation there. Mm. So we said so the boys, the good boys don't know how to counteract the bad boys. So then the girls are like, oh, well, they're, they're making all their judgments about boys just on the bad boys and the fact that the good boys are silent and so like my daughters went through a massive man-hating phase like they, you know it's kind of like partly in that way you do when you discover your feminism and you always go a bit too far at the beginning like I don't know if you've seen the film Moxie but it's about a group of, oh it's amazing oh, you'd love it okay. it's about a group of teenage girls in a, in a school with some bad boys and they discover feminism but they take it too far okay. and they just become absolute <laughs> misandrists and boy-hating and then yeah. they have to learn to turn it down they get a bit drunk on the feminism yeah. so my girls were very much man-hating and then they read the, the my book and they were like and they came in and they looked quite abashed and they were like yeah, I just realised that when I go around saying I hate all men, that's actually the good boys are being sad about that, but they don't even know how to say, like, kind of that makes me sad because they've yeah. been brought up to go, don't mansplain over a woman who says that she hates men. Mm. 
And my ultimate thing, like uh, there were quite a few feminists who were like, when I announced that I was doing this book, who were like, oh, you've abandoned the women then. Like kind of you're saying that men, like you know, you're, you're team men now. I was like, no, this is absolutely an extension of my feminism because as any woman will tell you, 50% of our problems are men. Bad men, scared men, mm. angry men, misogynist men. So you can't fix the girls until you fix the boys. Mm. And you can't fix the good boys until you fix the bad boys. Because ultimately, we're all just brothers and sisters, you know, in the back seat of a car, being driven by our Lord Jesus Christ <laughs> to the ultimate destination of the grave. And we can't be fighting on the back seat. It's a very short journey, really. We die quite quickly. So my whole thing is about we've just got our luck. The brothers and sisters need to get on with each other. And so if you look at what's making boys angry and scared and sad, it helps both the women and the the good boys who just are sitting there without any kind of vocabulary to discuss how they feel about their lives mm. in the way that we've given girls mm. a vocabulary to do that, which is feminism. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So let's talk about sex and let's talk about porn oh, right yeah. because um i did a piece for the irish times uh, i think it's a year ago now maybe or six months ago i don't know when and it was talking to a lot of women and men in their sort of early 20s about sex and about their kind of you know habits and stuff i was absolutely shocked right because it's not something i'd done before talk to it was actually at the beginning quite embarrassing like to ask people about you know their sexual habits and then i got really into it oh, right? yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but um, I was talking to these young women. A couple of things really shocked me, and they're things that you address uh, a, a bit. And one of them was that they consider sex to be over when the man is orgasmed, yeah. right? That they don't still now, like in their early 20s, in 2023, see that their pleasure and their orgasm is part of sex, right? 50%. Couldn't minimum. believe yeah. it. Yeah. Second of all, this choking business, oh. right? They were Most of them talked about how it was just so normal some of them said they liked it and some of them were very much said they'd had that experience. They've tried to stop some, sometimes been successful, sometimes not, that it had caused them grief, but that most of their friends all see it as part of normal sexual activity. And then we have all the problems about, and there was another guy I spoke to who was very addicted to pornography, was very open about that, who had managed to come out of it. And then there's a young man in your book who had a similar experience. So all of that, I think, is um, very interesting Heartbreaking, like you, you use the word. Um, but where did you land with with all of that? It's a lot. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. Well, the, I mean, the chapter about pornography was one of the ones that I found most fascinating. To well, first of all, I had an amazing story. So, when I wrote How to Be a Woman, I was talking about pornography from a woman's point of view and going like, when you look on these websites, the pull down menu is all types of women. So we know it's male gaze and like kind of like and just going, I find it very dolorous. The kind of sex that's on there. There's a kind of mono fuck kind of like it's just quite reductive. And I think female sexuality, if women started making porn did we if we dominated these websites and we were making it it'd be much more freaky and psychedelic and outlying uh i think women have much more creative and weird sexual imaginations for instance i have a friend who is me uh <laughs> 
that genuinely fancies St. Paul's Cathedral. Like, kind of, that looks like a building that knows what it's doing. If I ran into St. Paul's Cathedral in a bar after a couple of drinks, I'd be like, well, hello. <laughs> Ring my bell. Um, Broad-shouldered. Yeah, it? literally broad-shouldered. It's a, it's, a, it's a confident building that could get things done. So so I was going somewhere, you know. So but also book, Mark Ruffalo-based. <gasps> Why is there not a Mark Ruffalo section? Just looking delightfully rumpled. My ideal um, <laughs> Ruffalo state is either A, slightly hungover at a farmer's market and we're going around eating croissants and drinking coffee Definitely. and then we go back and have a long, slow bang to get over our hangovers. Or okay. B, when he's half Banner, half Hulk, halfway through the transition... <laughs> So he's already broken his trousers open, so that saved me a bit of admin. They've gone, but he's not gone full hunk and, and he's not totally green Why and out of his mind. Exist? I know. You I know. need to make it happen somehow. Half and You've half. got contacts. Like rice and chips, just like halfway, <laughs> half banner, half hulk. That's what I want. That's my ideal. Um, so I was going, so like, you know, this stuff doesn't exist, but I hope by the time my daughters, who are now eight, and their friends, including their friend Sam, is aged for both the boys and the girls. I hope by this the time this is what you were writing in, in How to Be a yeah. Woman in 2010. I hope by the time that they are teenagers and they look for pornography, these kids that are now eight will find some stuff that is better for them. I know Sam. Uh, I still know Sam. He's 22 now, and uh, I went on holiday with him a couple of years ago. And he went, "Yeah, it was funny when that got published in 2010, and you mentioned me and said that by the time I watch porn, that you hoped that I'd be seeing something that was better, because by that point I'd already seen porn." And it made me laugh when you mentioned that in your book because we were already watching it. And he was eight. He was eight at the time. And this is the thing, like, kind of like, because we grew up in a generation where there was no online pornography. And if you found pornography, it was like a magazine that someone left in a hedge, like nature had grown it. Our kids have grown up in this world where it's just there online and it's more extreme and violent than we could imagine. And we just don't really know about it. So when your kids are watching something at eight, first of all, your child's entry into the world of pornography is absolutely predicated on the most troubled kid in school getting their phone and going, have a look at this. Isn't this weird? So no matter what you do yeah. to, to make sure they don't see it, it, it's not your control. No, no. Yeah. And it will be the most troubled kid at school. Like I've talked to people who work in schools and in support services and they're like, yeah, these are generally children who come from abusive backgrounds and it's been normalised to them. So they want to share in their trauma, basically. And they're showing your kid something really weird. And the problem is that when your children at the age of eight are seeing this stuff... They have not had you give them the conversation, which is the most important thing they need to know about pornography before they see it, which is this. You don't just look at pornography. The pornography looks into you. You are soft, malleable clay at that age. So, of course, the sex that you see then becomes your future fantasies and sexual preferences. You are going to have massive chemical reactions to this stuff. You are going to get aroused when you see this. And this is going to rewire synapses in your brain. So for the rest of your life... Even with the help of therapy, this is probably going to be the stuff that turns you on. So be careful before you start watching this stuff. Nobody says that. No. And we don't even really know that. When I did the research on this, when I read this, I was like, this, I mean, to me, it looks like a future class action case in 20 years' time. If we've brought up a generation of kids who, like, kind of the only way they can get their rocks off is watching this really violent, dangerous stuff. That, by the way, choking sex in the UK has already resulted in the deaths of 67 women. So we know this is not a good hobby to have. So... So we need to be talking to our kids about this porn, like kind of like because with stuff like the, the, the choking and the strangulation for that to be seen as normal, women of my age who are newly divorced are going out there and coming back, hair turned white overnight in shock, going, where did this come from? How is this normal now? And of course, the problem with choking during sex is that you've cut off the method of communication that a woman would have to go, this is hurting me, this is scaring me. If you've got, you know, drunk, horny teenagers doing this thing without any and they're watching it in porn but it's in a contract they've you know they've discussed how to do it they've got people sitting around they've got witnesses it's on film if you're just giving this a go on your own for the first time because you think it's normal 
then you could end up with someone ending up in hospital or dead. And I see my role as being the kind of like the dirty auntie at Christmas Day who's like in the shed at the bottom of the garden smoking a fag and like bringing the teenagers over and going, I'm going to tell you what your parents wouldn't tell you. Like it's difficult for them to talk about it, but I'm going to tell you. And I'm just saying in the book, like if you want to be basically dizzy during sex, which is what choking makes happen, it's oxygen deprivation, then simply go back to the old traditional methods of our people. Either hold your breath or use poppers. Like and if that's what we did, just like... You know, the government won't advise this, but I'm just saying amyl nitrate over strangulation, if that's what you want. <laughs> and go back to Sam, because there's a really poignant uh, moment where he tells you uh, that he's been clean. <gasps> so, yeah, so we were at this, we were on holiday together and he was sitting there with a bottle of beer in one hand and a fag in the other. And he was like, I'm two years clean. And I was like, well, what do you mean? <laughs> we're partying. What were you saying? And he was like, I'm two years clean of porn. So he also has OCD. So when he started watching this porn, the algorithms were taking him further and further out into more and more violent and abusive stuff. And coupled with his OCD, this gave him intense mental and emotional problems. So by the time he was 15, he could not sleep at night. His dad was having to get into bed with him and hold him before he would fall asleep. And I mean, when I tell this story, it still just gives me the shivers. So so because he, because to him sex was porn, when he started having sex in the real world, first of all, he had massive erectile dysfunction problems because he just was overwhelmed by the reality of the situation. And he, along with a lot of other friends, because he did talk to friends about this, started not being able to look at women's faces when they were having sex. They would, like, put pillows over their faces while they were having sex because it was too overwhelming to see a woman reacting in the room to what they were doing. When they were, for, To them, sex was a computer screen in your hand. And to suddenly be in this world where there could be mistakes and people make silly noises, they might be giggling, it might go wrong, was just too overwhelming. They didn't have the, the training. So, I mean, I don't know how we, the species, with our incredible brains and technology, have managed to screw up sex for young people. Like, you know, cats are having sex on shed roofs in the rain and having a jolly old time, judging by the ones they heard last night. But yet we have somehow, the amount of young girls I know who've only ever seen violent online pornography who are like, well, I just don't ever want to have sex. Because they're not seeing women come. They're seeing women being slapped and spat on and choked, anal sex, head down the toilets. Why, if you're seeing that as an eight-year-old girl, would you ever think, I want that to happen? Mm. And also, why would you want to grow up to be a woman if that's what happens to women's bodies? Mm. If the primary point biologically of a woman is that you grow up and you have sex, why would you want to grow up and be a woman if that's what happened? But also for the boys, they're seeing these sort of unrealistic body types with massive penises who are totally in control. They can't laugh. They can't be tender. They can't be vulnerable. They can't be open. They're, it's not a two-way street. They're not there to, like, inspire pleasure in a woman. So it just seems to be an act of dominance. Mm. And, you know, I think most normal men and boys would be quite freaked out by that. We had a brilliant woman on the podcast a couple of times called Cindy Gallup. Do you know her? Oh. She has Make Love Not Porn. Make Love Not Porn. And, and I, I mean, adore her. Her mission is so brilliant, but I just, it's so annoying that it hasn't kind of gone mainstream yet. But what she's trying to do is show real life couples having sex and yes. all the messiness and all the joy and all the mutual pleasure that oh, it involves. I've, I've seen many of the videos on her <laughs> website. They're amazing. There's a brilliant one. So it's it's normal couples just having sex yeah. and filming it. And it's, it's, it's you're seeing sex. It's not porn, it's sex. There's an amazing one where there's a woman, she's got um, dreads with beads on the end and she's on top of her husband and they're having sex and then her face gets a bit too close to him and one of the beads swipes across his eye and you just hear him go, my retina! <laughs> Which is such a real life sex yes, moment. totally. 
and another one where they're just having an amazing bang and then you just hear in the background, Mummy, I'm thirsty. <laughs> There's just a child outside the bedroom door okay. and the camera goes dead. So um so yeah, it's all it's all the fun of the fair. But it's really interesting watching people actually have sex in the real world. People who know each other and liking each other. Mm-hmm. It's so different to porn. It's like kind of and, and I, I feel sorry for Cindy because like obviously she has to charge for this. Yeah. Whereas porn is free and that's the problem. No horny teenager, an eight year old the troubled eight year old kid at school isn't gonna like click through a paywall to watch Make Love Not Porn and then show it to other kids at school. And that's why maybe it needs to be government funded. You know, maybe we need to be broad minded and have have this stuff so that you yeah. can in the same way that students can get access to academic stuff free yeah. on the online that would otherwise be paywalled. One of the most popular chapters of your book you said, I think, on Twitter recently was the cock and bull mm. sort of chapter. The cock and balls of men, yes. Yeah. Well A, I felt like I had to do a bit of like sort of biological payback because I've spent so long talking about the vaginas and the vulvas, <laughs> like kind of like and and mining the joy and the humour therein. And uh, so I was like, we've got to talk about the balls now. So so psychologically, so I started talking to men about the genitals and I found several things. First of all, there's just general sense that kind of like in terms of casting or the kind of relationship between the penis and the testicles, that it's a kind of goose maverick situation. So the, the penis is the main star. It's Tom Cruise in Top Gun. Like kind of like it's it's all about him, that the plot revolves around him. But maybe he's not as lovable and relatable as balls slash goose. Like kind of like they're they're like the comedy sidekick. They're like kind of they'd be played by Jonah Hill or James Corden. They're kind of like they're they're just a bit more emotional. So there's a bit in the book where I'm talking about how one e- afternoon when uh, we the Wi-Fi had gone down in our house, so we were quite bored. Me and my husband were lying in bed, and I was just staring at his testicles because the telly wasn't working. And uh, as an experiment, I shouted at them and just went, "Look at you, you mad hairy ball sacks!" And they they retracted into his body in fear, and then rippled like a cuttlefish on a David Attenborough documentary. Just kind of like all the emotions were displayed as kind of cross texturally across the surface. And when I went on Twitter and got men to describe their balls. It was it was like a combination between James Joyce and like Monty Python. They were kind of going, on a hot day, they'll stick to either side of my thighs like pink bats on the side of a cave. Like kind of like we're in a hot bath where I've come in from a cold day and I get in a hot bath. They kind of like ripple and unfold like a mollusk slowly coming out of a shell. So I was like, I love that men are talking. I've never heard men talking about their... And, there's a, and th- then the, I go on to talk about Donald Trump. So I don't know if you remember the fun day on social media two years ago where Stormy Daniels, the former porn actress, described having sex with Donald Trump. And she described his genitals thus, that they were smaller than average and weirdly shaped like Mushroom Guy from Mario Kart. And that additionally, he had very dry pubes like shredded wheat. And at first, I, I, like the rest of the internet, was like, lol, 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 retweet, retweet, retweet. It makes sense that the horrible guy has really weird genitals. Ha, 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 ha. And then I started to deep, as they say, on Love Island, this situation. Which I is, have to say to people that when you say deep, you sort of stroke, stroke your my, imaginary beard. My imaginary beard, like yeah. a full, yeah, philosophical, philosophical man. A philosophical man. A falafel man. A philosophical man. And one, women have done really great work in the last 20 years about not making a moral equivalence between our bodies and our personalities. Like kind of like we don't now generally, or it's on the way, describe women kind of like, you know, make judgments about their bodies and then presume that we know about them. Mm. So like, I don't like that we're now doing it to boys, even if it's Donald Trump, but we don't do it to girls. And secondly, key thing, if you were a 15 year old boy reading these tweets, who had a smaller than average penis that looked like any character from Mario Kart, And also additionally had not worked out that you can put conditioner on your pubes and make them all silky and shiny. You'd be feeling terrible about your cock and balls. Like kind of like we don't 
talk about men's genitals in the same way that we do about women's now. That mm. kind of freedom, that kind of lack of shame. The, av- the statistics are that one in four men has a penis that's between three or four inches on the flop. So that's kind of like below average. So that means one in four of the Beatles was like packing hand luggage and three out of Ocean's Eleven were kind of like, you know, just like, you know, were short kings in the trouser department. But no one, no man is talking about this. It's always seen that you have to just pretend you've got this massive kind of uber dick and that you can't be honest about your your mm. genitals in the way that women have been so much. We're so honest about, you know, how we feel. We're proud of, of our bodies. Mm. But there's no conversation like that for boys. And so the only time you see boys actually really talking about their bodies, you know, and their cocks and their balls is when they send dick pics to girls. And that doesn't start the right conversation. Like that's, that's not the answer. If you're worried about your genitals, then sending a picture to a woman on a bus is not the droids you are looking for. Like yeah. kind of like, let's try and find a way to talk about these things with the same kind of humour and pride and joy that women have been talking about their bodies. The and last you also years. looked into friendships um, mm. between men as well, which is interesting. What did you discover? Well, that's a huge thing. So one, first of all, Big underpinning statistic on all this. One in five men over the age of 50 said they did not have a single close friend. Mm. Men seem to like, find... That's amazing, isn't yeah. it? One in five over yeah. 50 said they don't have one single close friend. close friend. So there is an epidemic of male loneliness. And it, Are some of those people without friends though not lonely as well? Would you imagine some of them are okay, doing okay by themselves? I'm just I wondering. Know, everyone needs someone though, yeah. don't they? Like you can't just be in your own head all the time. Mm. Like however fabulous it is, you would go mad. Um, <laughs> so there were things like, so first of all, I think sort of most women will recognise the scenario where your friend, your husband does go out uh, for the evening to see a friend and they come back after three hours and you go, so what's the goss? <laughs> what's going on there? And they're like, what? And Suzanne you go, is nodding over yeah. there. <laughs> and you're like, so did they buy the house? Like, <laughs> The dog's still got diabetes. How's that working out? Like, did Jen get that job? And they're like, I didn't talk about that. You're like, well, what did you talk about? Did you get any information at all? And they're like, no, we just worked out who would win in a fight, a swan or a bear. Um, You're like, oh, I'll call Jen myself. I'll find out. So... And then when Gone Fishing with Bob Mortimer and Paul Whitehouse is on, you just... Which is two friends actually talking about big things together. Afterwards, every time there's an episode on, social media is just full of men going, I wish I had a friendship like that. I wish I had someone I could talk to about these things. Because the the main method of communication with men tends to opt into banter. It's kind of bants. It's kind of like jokey stuff. It's pub quizzes and stuff. And that's all great. But there isn't something built into those kind of conversations where you can suddenly ramp off into going, actually, I'm feeling really depressed. Or I'm really worried about work. Or like kind of like, I don't know what's happening with my wife. Like kind of, so you don't have those kind of off ramps into... And so with that statistic about men being lonely and seeing structurally that obviously hashtag not all men, but a lot of men probably have this problem. When I wrote the first draft about male friendship, my husband read it and he was like, oh, God, I see the difference between male and female friendships now. It's friendship is a verb. It's a doing word. I see that the thing I need to do, which is so easy, is I just need to structure in meeting up with my friends and scheduling it in the way that women do. It's as simple as that. And so he now just sees a friend once a week to play tennis and once a month they all meet up to do records. And he's like, I, I, I can't believe I only learned this at 52. You just literally need to put it in the diary. And then when you see each other regularly enough, you run out of banter and you do end up sort of going, you know, you sort of, you, you're like, so, you know, last time I saw you, you were thinking of buying a house. How's that going now? You just are able mm. to have those kind of conversations that women take for granted. Yeah. And the big difference is between the men's and the women's toilets. Like when women go into the women's toilets, you don't know a single soul in there, but whatever problem you've got, you've got a safety pin, you've got a tampon, someone will give you a shot, someone will adjust your eyeliner, someone will put their arm around you and go, your boyfriend sounds like a bastard let's go on the dance floor and you come out going I've made a friend women can talk to anyone we're so good at making friends talking about the deep stuff 
My understanding is that that doesn't happen in the men's toilets. <laughs> that men aren't coming out of the men's toilets going, I made a friend! I confessed some things that made me sad and I had a cry and now we're going to dance together. Mm. And I don't see why men don't have that. That's just something culturally that we haven't addressed. And so so what I'm trying to do in the book is set a tone where kind of like men can just see the worth of it and just, mm. just come and borrow this thing that women have invented. And it's about, I suppose, as well, they need a men's movement maybe is yes. what you're suggesting. So... Tell us how that might work or what that might look like. Hugely. So there's been attempts at it before. It was interesting when I looked into the history of this. So sort of like concurrent with feminism, there's been several attempts to make a men's movement. The most successful one was at the end of the 60s, early 70s with the hippie thing. And uh, men were going, you know, let's be more emotional. Let's talk about these things. Let's have a sense of brotherhood and progress and stuff. And back then it founded on homophobia, that there was a big reactive core within those Mm. men's movements who were like, no, basically that's a bit gay. If we touch each other, talking about emotions, that's gay. And that's what killed it. And one of the things that even though my daughter's generation, you know, Andrew Tate, you know, has, has taken a section of them, they are palpably more emotional and and tender with each other. You see teenage boys hugging each other, even kissing each other in greeting, like kind of talking about their mm. emotions. And that has happened hand in hand with the massive decline in homophobia in that generation. And and I think that's why this generation of boys are palpably freer in their emotions. And it's interesting because we've always talked about the kind of allyship between straight women and gay men. But we've never really looked into, because we don't write about straight men, how tied in to the fate of straight men is the status of gay men. Like kind of like as homophobia declines, these things that would be seen as gay in my generation, because they're not stigmatised anymore, it actually frees up straight men to be able to kind of, you know, expand mm. the idea of what a man is. And you're not in that cage of masculinity and straightness. That We're is. actually finding in Ireland, though, an increase in homophobia, actually. It's been, really? We, yeah, there's been a lot of incidents on people, even though we've had equal marriage and we voted for that and everything. It's, it's somewhere what on the rise. I think just conversations that are happening, there's a toxicity about it that's Where's different. That happening there? Because like, with kids... With, I mean, maybe it's different in the UK, but like for the for you know for Gen Z A, to be homophobic is just seen as yeah. Baffling. I think there's that, but I think there's another side, and maybe it's I don't know pushback. Yeah, maybe it's pushback. Um, but do you you don't necessarily are com- not necessarily coming up with solutions, right? You're not saying here I am, Catelyn Moore, and telling you all uh, how it should be. No. But what do you think would be good for men to happen? Well, what what I'm doing is going feminism came up with a set of rules. No, not rules tools for understanding the problems of your gender and if there's something that is you know has oppressed women or pissed them off or made Mm. them feel sort of lesser we've come up with these brilliant tools that allow you to go okay that's because of our gender we're going to bitch about this we're going to organize about this and we're going to change it and what i'm saying is that like that's men need to use those tools now we've already invented this thing that allows us to look at gender so like all the way through the book i'm just looking at these problems i try and work out why they happened and i've tried to come at it a different angle and go well maybe this would be the solution or kind of like oh this would be the way that you would dismantle this just to, to look at these things and so much of it you know i think often we think when there's a problem like this we think it's got to be either education or political but my observation from reading so much about history is culture is the quickest and most effective place for things to change mm. because i have lived through a time when the status of women has changed completely and the way that we talk and the confidence we have. And I don't see why what we've given to our teenage girls could not now be given to our teenage boys. And it's literally about making a space and setting a tone and going, this is the time to talk about boys now. And I suggest we talk about it in this way. It's not about power. It's not about boys getting revenge on girls. It's not like, oh, no, no, the pendulum has swung the other way and now it's the time of ubermen. Mm. It's just going, start having the same kind of brilliant, proud, silly 
fascinating conversations between yourselves, boys, that girls are enjoying now. Because if you are, going back to where we started, if you are scared and angry and you think girls are winning, the only thing we've got that you haven't got is this ability to talk about these things in a joyful, hopeful, positive way that has made us feel proud. And I want you to have that now. And have you had any young men that it resonates with that you think maybe this will change huge I mean the main thing is like young men do not come to gigs by sort of middle aged women talking about their balls like kind of and that's probably for the best there do seem to be safeguarding issues there I feel slightly inappropriate but what I'm hearing is the mums and dads and the teachers that are coming to this are going oh yeah I have observed all these problems and I didn't know how to start this conversation, but the way that you're talking about it, I can see how we can do that. It's all mm. about not confronting people face on. It's about being having the kind of conversations where if something like porn comes up, you feel, yeah, I can go into this conversation really comfortably. It's mm. not suddenly going to be a shock. So, yeah, it's, it, you know, it is like, I mean, just a chatty person. And I was just like, I reckon I can start this chat. Let's give it a go. I think you definitely have started the chat. And just going back to the beginning again, because you said that normally when a book comes out, there's this general hurrah, which, yes. is, which I, I totally think is right. And I've been interested to watch the non-hurrah in some, in some quarters. How do you deal with that personally? Because you are someone who is very well loved and admired. And that's been kind of for the last whatever, how many years you've been writing since you were 12. Yes. Um, has been, been the case. How have you dealt with it personally, the kind of different reaction? Oh, first of all, by massive sobbing and weeping, uh, then rampant Now, it's interesting paranoia. to hear that someone like you would be well, sobbing and weeping because kind of we could think about you as, oh, she's Teflon. She's got such a thick skin by this stage, isn't it? Be no. God, no. Well, all authors before a book come out, I mean, every single book that before the two weeks before it comes out, I'm genuinely planning how I could have complete facial reconstruction surgery <laughs> and live in another country if it goes wrong. Like, because you just don't know. Because you're sitting there on your own for a year going, I hope this works, but I don't know. But like... I, I, everything I do is to go out of my way to not make people be angry. Like everything I do, 90% of the energy that I put into things is to be as non-controversial and warm and open as possible. So the fact that, and again, people who had not read the book were getting angry about it was deeply upsetting to me. But then I think I think a lot of it was that like men aren't used to being written about as a class and particularly by a woman because it was always it was always straight white men. The, the three bad reviews that I've had were straight white men who were also journalists who also I think possibly I brought it on myself because like one of the things that I'm saying in the book is every woman I know with a public platform every journalist I know we spend half our time doing unpaid feminism we're always signing petitions we're campaigning about stuff we're going into parliament we're mentoring young women we're constantly mentoring the young girls and I was going well all my male peers are not doing that with the boys and possibly they were piqued by that that was a, possibly that was a subtweet but really notably, anyone of colour, anyone who's gay who's written about this book has totally got it because they are used to being written about as a class and they know that you need to start a movement with a bit of truth. So. You did say that you were you were you you put aside the project you were actually working on yes. to do this because it felt quite urgent. So what is that project? And and tell us about what's next so it's from my you. It's for my girlfriends of my age who have not been able to find a, a, a husband, basically, which, or a decent partner. Which is a whole other thing. I, yeah. I mean, I, I am just amazed all the time by the amazing tract of incredible women that are just can't no. you know find um, a, these are heterosexual women yeah. I'm talking about partner you know because 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 basically the technology of women has really progressed in the last 15 years we've really empowered but ourselves and made ourselves horrendous. like I've never been on one of those apps but I have friends who tell me about it and I just can't oh they're brutal cope. yeah but they're just, I think generally women have been so into improving themselves. They're so excellent because we have not had anything like feminism for men. They just have not improved or expanded themselves in the way that women have. So just the stock isn't there. It's a pipeline issue. <laughs> and so I was having a conversation with one of my, my best and most amazing friends. And I was just saying, I, and I was just going, I just wish I could give you a husband. If I'd known that you'd be in this crisis now, 20 years ago, I would have gone out of my way to have a son so that you could now be having a very age inappropriate <laughs> 
relationship with a really good man that I'd made just for you. Like, kind of, I wish I could make you a husband. And then I was like, oh, what if women could make husbands? So it's a kind of sci-fi book. It's set to like five years in the future where a, a group of women go about making perfect robot husbands. It's basically like John Hughes' Weird Science. Do you remember that one where teenage yes, boys I make the perfect do. woman? Very dodgy. So it's movie. a feminist middle-aged <laughs> reboot of that. Like, kind of like, what if we could? And like, and, and in some ways it goes very wrong. And then there's a very unexpected twist in it. But I just wanted to write a bit of brilliant wish fulfillment. Like, kind of, if we, if we, if grown women could make perfect men, what would we make? What do we actually think we want? And how would that work Mark out if Ruffalo, we got it? Mark Ruffalo, again. half banner, half Hulk. Yeah. <laughs> there, there is a character called uh, um, Rark Buffalo in it, um, which uh, maybe you will be able to work out who he is. <laughs> Um, I mean, that's my impression of you always um, observing you and, you know, getting to know you over the last uh, 12 or 13 years is, for me, Catelyn Moran is trying to help, is oh trying God, to be yeah. kind and generous and funny always, yeah. as you always are. And, you know, I think you bring that to everything, which is why it's made me a bit cross and sad to see some of the stuff. Yeah. But, you know, maybe just has to happen sometime. Uh, you know, uh, I've had a good run, like kind of, you know, eight <laughs> books met with a general hurrah and then like, you know, three pissy reviews and like people being angry for two weeks. Now the book's out. My timeline is just people who've read it going, yeah, right. I get it. This is brilliant. Thank right. you so much. But yeah, but yeah, primarily I just, I like to amuse. You do. I like to be silly, but the main thing I want to be is useful. And I think that's my job. I just want to be useful. I want us to all get on. I'm just an idealist. Exactly. And I think you are very useful. And I'm so glad for you to come in again, I think for the 20 millionth time, which is, we'll always have you in. It'll be 700 million times before we both die, let's face it. <laughs> and uh, thank you very much for all you do and for opening this conversation. And Like, it's not necessarily you're the only person who's ever talked about this stuff no. and you're not claiming that, but no. I think you're the only person who's talked about it in quite this way. I think it's fair enough. Yeah, a whole span of a men's life attacked with a kind of pop culture fun edge that we've done with women. I was like, yeah, okay. Yeah, let's see if we can now have a men's section in the, in the, in the bookshops and maybe my book will be there with two others. <laughs> Catelyn Moran, thank you so much. Thank you, my darling. That was Catelyn Moran there and her book is called What About Men? And it's a really, really great read. If you enjoyed this episode and you like the podcast, please leave us a review or subscribe to us as it makes a big difference. The podcast is produced by Suzanne Brennan and by me, Roisin Ingle, with JJ Vernon on sound. Talk to us on social at IT Women's Podcast or email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. That's it for me. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.